I, I kind of wasted my time at school, but I wasted my time very, very fruitfully. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stopped making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection Redeployment. Our crack producer, musician and recording engineer Adam Kamara. And me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. In this installment of Manifesto, a podcast, we'll talk about Valerie Solanas' 1968 <laughs> manifesto, Scum, an abbreviation of the Society for Cutting Up Men, and uh, Kristen Rupenian's short story, Cat Person, which was the featured fiction in the December 2017 issue of The New Yorker, probably the most talked yeah. about short story of the past decade. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, Andrew Dworkin's intercourse, too. That's right. Uh, Solanas was a writer and a radical feminist. She was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, a sometimes prostitute, a lesbian who also had relationships with men, a paranoid schizophrenic, and also an attempted murderer. Um, she's famous for shooting Andy Warhol in 1968, and that was in a sort of uh, dispute that I think largely took place in Solanus's head yeah. over a play she wrote called Up Your Ass. Presentation of the rationale and program of action of scum, Society for Cutting Up Men. The male tries to convince himself and women that the female function is to bear and raise children, soothe, relax, and boost the male ego. When in actual fact, the female function is to groove, relate, love, be herself, discover, explore, invent, solve problems, crack jokes, make music, all with love. In other words, create a magic world. She shot him and she shot uh, Mario Maya and uh, served three years in prison. Warhol was deeply affected for his whole life. Um, and uh, she also uh, stalked him afterwards. Right, and I learned from Phil this morning that Lou Reed wrote a, a very bad song about this. It's a very angry song. A very yeah. angry song. Well, some angry I mean, I mean it seems fair <coughs> if somebody shot your friend. Reasonable enough, I'd say, yeah. So who was Solanus? Uh, in addition to writing this manifesto, Scum, in 68, and also shooting Andy Warhol that year, and that sort of capsule resume I just provided, she was somebody who was operating in a, a few different milieus. She was involved in some of the radical politics of the time, um, those adjacent to the Warhol scene. She was involved uh, directly, to some extent, in Warhol's factory scene and in the Bohemian demimonde around that. And then she was also in the actual outsider world that touched both radical politics and that bohemian demimonde, and that was the world of the criminally insane, uh, you know, the lumpen proletariat and the criminally insane, which both the uh, political types and the hippie types tried to claim, uh, but was always really something distinct. And um, she was part of all of those worlds. Um, 
And all of those worlds, I think, are reflected in this scum manifesto, which is part manifesto, part provocation, part sort of artistic statement, and part uh, reflection of a, a fractured um, psychology and, and a, a wounded human being. Yeah. So, okay, what does she actually say in this scum manifesto? Well, I, I, I think it... it, it uh she sums it up. She sums up the program pretty clearly, and you get a little bit of the sense of the style in the first sentence. So, life in this society being at best an utter bore, and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. And so, that pretty much lays it out. I think um, uh, <laughs> it's. It's a, it's, a, it's a manifesto that's difficult to take entirely seriously, though she always insisted that the program was serious, um, in part because of the style, in part because it's just sort of so wild and, and kind of uh, disjointed. Wild, disjointed, and also written in the language of counterculture eye-poking and yeah. the epate le bourgeois style of... Uh, you know, in your eye. And so it, it's not always easy to disentangle what's meant as aesthetic provocation, what's meant as cultural provocation, from what's meant as a, a serious statement about the sexes, and also from what's meant as a, a sort of a personal statement, as a, as a memoir yep. of sorts, you know, a sort of a disguised memoir of sorts, which some of this, I think, clearly is. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. In the last uh, last podcast, we talked about the humanist manifestos and complained that they were a bloodless myth. Um, here, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> she's she's calling for actual violence and, and the elimination of all men. So it's a pretty bloody myth, uh, I guess, though it doesn't feel that way. And, and the first thing that I noticed when I was reading it was I was kind of delighted uh, at least for probably about the first page, and then the style starts to wear. But um, Yeah, yeah, I think the style does wear. But let's lay out a couple of the sort of key points in the program insofar sure. as you could say that this manifesto has a program. There are probably, um, you know, three or four key points that it makes. And, and one of the key points is that what we think of as maleness and what we think of as femaleness are actually inversions of the intrinsic qualities of men and women. And the way she defines maleness is principally as a lack. Yeah. That men are sort of abscesses. They are uh, hollow, self-loathing creatures. And that what we... Think of as masculine characteristics, aggressiveness, um, creative energies are really attempts by men to make up for their self-loathing mm -hmm. over this lack inside of themselves. And this passiveness. And this passiveness and to appropriate the qualities of women uh, which lead them to judge themselves harshly by contrast. So the the male attempts to dominate and subordinate the female in order to make up for this passiveness and to take from the female what is really hers. Right. So, you know, that that and oftentimes what they're what they're offering are really sort of pale substitutes, right? So, you know, when she talks about money, 
uh, which which she wants to get get rid of. She refers to it as a love su- love substitute. Unable to give love or affection, the male gives money. It makes him feel motherly. The mother gives milk. He gives bread. Right. Um, and uh, you know, so there's this kind of constant desire to fill this emptiness, uh, or to constantly prove yourself, which is, I think, in in, in some senses, is, is um, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a certain degree of truth to it. Uh, I remember. So when I was in in college, uh, I was on a rugby team, which is this kind of like roiling mass of masculine insecurity, right? And uh, there are all these kind of weird rituals uh, associated with um, <laughs> with being in a rugby team. But I was also on the boxing team, which even though it's a sort of stereotypically like very rugged masculine thing to do, uh, you didn't really have much of that because the boxing team was men and women training together. Uh, nobody was sort of you know, Mike Tyson, nobody was really going pro. Uh, so the, really the only thing was, did you go in the ring or not? And if you did, there you go. And, and men and women both both competed. And I remember my first boxing match was at this, like, smoker in this high school, like, gymnasium. Uh, it's like a little stage. There's, you know, a couple hundred people in the audience. I'm, you know, very, very, very much far from the main building. Um, and so I had my first fight. And I won. I won by technical knockout in the third round. And the the first thought that came to my head, like as I was like getting out the ring and realizing like I just, you know, won, was um, for the rest of my life, I am drinking my alcohol at the pace that I want to drink it. I'm never chugging a beer again for the rest of my life, right? Um, Hard one, that <laughs> to drink. It's, your own it's just the... It takes a lot. <laughs> you know, it's just like the dumbest sort of thing, but that was just one of those. Uh, yeah. No, I I had to go to a wreck to come home and think I can sit with my legs crossed in public. It's like, <laughs> you know, the, the equivalent sort of statement. That's, you should have just boxed. It would have been easier. Yeah. Well, if I do both, then I, I ought to be able to wear dresses and still yeah. feel secure. Right. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And Solanus actually makes, um, I think, you know, a, a slightly different point because what she's saying is not just that uh, men are, are insecure and that they go to great lengths to shore up their sense of masculinity. She's saying that masculinity is itself a counterfeit concept, right. not because there is no maleness and no femaleness, but because uh, maleness is something else. And let me... Let me read a, a bit that I think gets at that. What she says is, being an incomplete female, the male spends his life attempting to complete himself, to become female. He attempts to do this by constantly seeking out, fraternizing with, and trying to live through and fuse with the female, and by claiming as his own all female characteristics, emotional strength and independence, forcefulness, dynamism, decisiveness, coolness, objectivity, assertiveness, courage, integrity, vitality, intensity, depth of character, grooviness, etc., <laughs> and projecting onto women all male traits, vanity, frivolity, triviality, weakness, etc. So two things jump out there, and the first is how poorly the word groovy has aged. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is just a, a word that makes you wince, but also that, you know, she 
clearly wants to to recuperate some of these traditionally masculine characteristics. She doesn't want to invalidate them. She just wants to say they're not actually male. Right. The ultimate male insight is that life is absurd. So he invented philosophy and religion. Being empty, he looks outward, not only for guidance and control, but for salvation and for the meaning of life. Happiness, impossible on this earth. He invented heaven. And I think that that, that sort of, um, her sort of description of, the, of, of men and women, sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it just kind of, I don't know, r- rolls off me because it seems kind of ridiculous or, or hyperbolic or uh, uh, I'm not sure the, the sort of like Freudian inversion thing. Yeah, I think ridiculous and hyperbolic sums it up. And when it hits, it can't, you know, when, when it makes a point, it can't sustain the point it makes because it's all just oozing out in this sort of brain gush that, you know, contains some points of wit, some occasional insights, but is incapable itself of distinguishing between what's interesting, what's insightful, and what is a sort of boilerplate, you know, or just provocation. The the so there's there's her sort of description of men, and then there's what was a little bit more interesting to me was her relationship to society, and she's not just critiquing kind of conservative, you know, 1950s patriarchy, traditional molds of society. She's also very explicitly critiquing. Uh, the sort of liberal hip artist yeah, hippie counterculture the hippie counterculture um, you know she's not she, she's not interested in free love uh, she calls sex the refuge of the mindless um, uh, says sex is not part of a relationship on the contrary it is a solitary experience non-creative a gross waste of time and when she starts talking about the hippie community uh, which you know she actually thinks that, uh, you know, the hippie here, she says, the hippie's desire to be a man, a rugged individualist, isn't quite as strong as the average man's, and who, in addition, is excited by the thought of having lots of women ac- accessible to him, rebels against the harshness of a breadwinner's life and the monotony of, uh, of one woman. Um, and in the name of sharing and cooperation, he forms a commune or tribe, which for all its togetherness and partly because of it, is no more a community than normal society. Uh, and it actually kind of echoes some, like, modern conservative critiques of the sexual revolution and the ways that it sort of uh, didn't offer um, kind of the benefits to women uh, or that it, it substituted one form of exploitation of women for another. Uh, yeah, that it privileged uh, male licentiousness as a, a, a form of freedom yeah. um, or packaged that licentiousness as a form of freedom, which ended up privileging male sexual appetites and um, not actually offering women all that much. And in that way, it also anticipates the dork, and we'll get to in yeah. a second. So th- this bit reminded me of – there's a, a, a great book of poems by Cynthia Huntington that was a finalist for the National Book Award a couple years ago. It's called Heavenly Bodies, and there's a poem in there called Shot Up in the Sexual Revolution that is the poet, uh, you know, thinking back, you know, uh, you know, much older now about this, you know, this time and, and the excitement of the sexual revolution and sort of uh, living through it and, and what the experience meant. And there's a moment in the poem, I'll just, uh, I'll just read. 
Still, sex then was a taking, like spoils of war, a victory over all those straight fucks back home, marooned in the dismal suburbs that birthed us squalling in red and watched us flee in ungrateful cars down night hallways. And God knows it felt good those nights. I was ready, it was ready, to open and answer the call and take me down and roll me over, yes, and give it to me. But why all this riding away afterward? Where was everyone going? And why didn't I get to ride along? Who knew at first nothing had changed? Just wanting the thrust and tug and slam up against the headboard? I should say so, but left still wanting more. Wanting to leap out of century's shame and be something new. Not this old consolation of women for the powerless. Some kind of cosmic door prize awarded just for showing up with a dick. Some proof to themselves these boys were men. You're good, he said. Hell, I wasn't taking a typing test. I was fighting to live in a dying world. Yeah, that's a hell of a poem. Um, start there. And, uh, you know, the last time you read that to me, what I keyed in on was the, the squalling, fleeing line, which is so expressive. But this time I heard something different. And the line that jumped out at me this time was the line that jumped out at me was the line about wanting to leap out of century's shame. And yeah. What does it be something new, feel something new? Out of century shame and be something new, not this old consolation of women for the powerless. There's an interesting thing that um, some of this sort of 70s punk aesthetic did, which was to declare sex boring. Yeah. You know, which was sort of the opposite of the hippie attitude, which was to declare sex the apotheosis of, of love and of uh, freedom and of... Uh, human communion. You, you can't discount the role of heroin in that. Well, I can actually. <laughs> yeah. um, no, maybe you're right. I can't discount the role, but I can. I can say it wasn't all of it because one of the guys. I'm not a Sex Pistols fan. I always. I don't know. They didn't do it for me. But one of the guys who was most articulate about this was Johnny Rotten, who was not at all a junkie and was very anti-heroin, but who sort of had this kind of brilliant, like, blithely dismissive attitude towards sex. And it was precisely in that so much has been made of this animal rutting. And really, like, that's where, that's where freedom lies. You know, some of it was just purely a rebellion against the hippies, I think. But some of it was pointing out that the, the hippies, so in love with their own newness and their own freedoms, had constituted that newness and freedoms in the very oldest and most primitive forms of human activity and human ritual. And there wasn't really anything very new or liberating in that. And that the liberating thing was to say, you know, was to have a sort of a, a colder attitude towards sex. Not my own attitude, you right. know, but it's aesthetically interesting. Yeah, and this, and that's one of the, that's one of the ways that that Solanus does feel like she's anticipating a lot of things that come later. Not just with, um, you know, the Sex Pistols, but I think you know we'll talk about Dworkin too. Um, yeah, the, the 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 thing about this that. I think struck me the most was because even though there would be little kind of nuggets here or there that, that I really liked was, I said before, you know, when I first read this, I immediately felt delight, right? In part because of the style, right? It's a fun style. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the next thing that I thought was like, as a guy reading this, as somebody who is, you know, on the chopping block for her society of cutting up men, uh, <sighs> You know, why am I so delighted? It's because it's, because it's impossible to take seriously, 
right? Uh, you know, even if it were more rigorously thought out, the style um, that you know doesn't allow you to take it seriously, and it doesn't it doesn't feel threatening uh, in a way that even a, I think a very similar tight manifesto, but written, written by a man, definitely would, and no. would, and would and would, would would suggest a potential for more why, violence. Why is that? Right? Why doesn't it feel threatening? Because ultimate, not just because it's hyperbolic, yeah. because the hyperbole could be amplifying a genuine threat but in this case there is no threat in the in the core of this the idea that in Solanus's future and by the way there is you know just to to sort of provide a broader context about what she lays out in this manifesto in the future right men will have been relegated to either obsolescence or to uh, sort of serfdom because we won't need money anymore. Uh, death will have been cured. Men are the cause of death. So there's a sort of... It's going to be very easy to cure death, too. Very easy to cure death. You just get rid of men, right? right? And then men are the source of death. But there's a kind of like flippant science fiction well, communism I mean, going on so, here. It, it is like... Because the, you know, the Communist Manifesto, it's like, here are the problem. And once we eliminate this problem, like there's no more politics. There's no more anything. Like everything's going to be solved, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, this is feminist, communist, transhumanism. Right. You know, we will cure death, we'll cure capitalism. Everything will be automated. Everything will be automated. But part of what you're saying, you know, sort of rolls off uh, and, like, the joke is funny for a page. But what do you feel by the end of it? You know, I It's not sad. funny anymore. Like, yeah. You feel, feel sad. really sad. And, but what is that sadness? Because I think it takes two forms. One is that you feel sad because by the time you get to the end of it— it's clear how, you know, how wounded Solanus is right. and how this is a kind of lashing out. But the it's, second it's not, part It's of, not just about her. But it's not just about her. But the second part of that, right, is that you feel sad that she's lashing out. You also feel she's pathetic, though. And it feels pathetic. And I use that specific word, uh, pathetic, because she can never carry through on any of these threats. The closest she can get to any of this is shooting Andy Warhol. It's an outsized gesture. But the idea that you're going to eliminate men from society, that men are the cause of death, is finally a kind of pathetic idea because it lacks... It's being voiced by somebody who, in their outsized claims is only exaggerating their own ineffectualness, their own powerlessness. Right. And you grasp that powerlessness, and that's why it feels pathetic, and, I think. And, 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 and she's able to, to, to actually finger and point to some of the things that, that, that are sort of real things in the society that she's coming from that affect that powerlessness. Uh, of course. Yeah. Of course, but she can't... Um, she can't... She can't distinguish between, right. you know, there, there can't be it, not just a, a sort of poetic critique. Yeah. It's not just that the critique is poetic instead of sober. It's that it's, it's that her, her thinking is disordered right. and, and kind of crazy. And, which, which is why I think, you know, uh, it takes somebody like Dworkin, who you can't dismiss and you can't just be delighted by. No, he, he actually has a pretty, you know, very aggressively and thoughtfully worked out critique that, that – I think. Um, well, should we talk about Dworkin, or should we should we talk about what we, what this would look in, pra- look nah, like in look, practice? Look, th- what this would look like in practice is um, a, a TV show, an episode of an updated Twilight Zone, or something, yeah. because it's a sort of 
What about parody? Why the last man? The comic book? Why the last man? Except it's not. Except why the last man assumes that you know women are still human beings and thus problems of you know geopolitics and war and all, all sorts of things will continue without men because of human nature. Yeah, and why the last man is aware of itself as art in a way that right. you sense Solana sometimes is and sometimes isn't. Yeah. So, you know, it, it would look like um, why the last man, <laughs> yeah. but sadder, you know, <laughs> something like that, which uh, which is a comic book that people should read if it's they really haven't good, yeah. about a world in which there's only one man left alive yeah. or so it seems and uh, what that means. Yeah, Brian K. Vaughan. His saga is really good, too. Yeah. Look at this shitty war writing. If a woman was in charge, it would never have happened. I'm expecting my draft papers any day now. Women are real. They're human. I mean, men aren't even complete human beings. The male gene is an incomplete female gene. Now, that's why he's got this built-in inferiority complex that's always pulling those lousy stunts. Can I have a lemonade? Just a minute. Do you, do you want to kill all the men in the world? No, no. I don't think that would be necessary. What about drag queens? What about drag queens? I mean... They want to be women, so... What, you mean if you got a sex change, would that mean you're okay? No, because you're still a man. That's not what makes a woman a woman. Hormones. There's more to it than that. And look, look at Candy Darling. Here you have a perfect victim of male oppression. Piffo. Should we talk about Dworkin? Yeah, tell me something about Dworkin. So Dworkin was a radical feminist... Um, Probably most famous for her campaigns against pornography. She teamed up with um, City of Minneapolis for an anti-pornography uh, amendment that that defined pornography as a civil rights violation against women. Um, Indianapolis uh, later went with a, a similar um, similar law that was uh, determined as uh, unconstitutional. Uh, and the book that we read was <laughs> Intercourse. <laughs> the whole. By the way, the whole theory behind this, Jake, was that we were going to read short things that would be easy to do, and uh, we're, yeah. get, we're getting into this, and you're like, you should read this, you know, really I'm in charge rich. of your education, Phil, yeah, so yeah. I, I have to assign you a curriculum. No, I'm glad I read it. It was phenomenal. I I, I was blown away by, by Intercourse, which is... You know, I'd heard of Dworkin before, and I'd heard there's this remark that's attributed to her that doesn't really sum up her... her Views, but um, you know that she had said that all heterosexual sex is rape, right? Um, and I was aware, sort of her, of her as this kind of radical feminist, but uh, hadn't you know thought much about or read anything of hers. And then I read Intercourse, which is at heart it's it's literary analysis of uh, sex in literature, right? And it's her going through you know our greatest minds and looking. At what they say about sex and trying to take it seriously, and and she gives these brutal readings. And actually, there's a there's a, a, a bit from the the introduction that I think um, sums this up really nice. Where she talks about Bovary, are you going for that one? <laughs> I mean, the, the problem with this book is like there's so many amazing. Yeah. Well, I've never written for a cowardly or passive or stupid reader. The precise characteristics of most reviewers. Anyway, sorry. This is this is the um, uh, her description of her own book and her style. Intercourse does not narrate my experience to measure it against Norman Mailer's or D.H. Lawrence's. The first person is embedded in the way the book is built. I use Tolstoy, Kobo Abe, 
James Baldwin, Tennessee Williams, Isaac Bashevis Singer, Flaubert, not as authorities, but as examples. I use them. I cut and slice into them in order to exhibit them, but the authority behind the book, behind each and every choice, is mine. In formal terms, then, intercourse is arrogant, cold, and remorseless. You, the reader, will not be looking at me, the girl. You will be looking at them. I love the literature these men created, but I will not live my life as if they are real, and I am not. Yeah, I I mean, in isolation, that uh, is very hard to disagree with, but I I would dispute a couple of points in your characterization of Dworkin. The first is intercourse is sort of literary analysis, but it's sort of social critique through the lens of literary analysis. And if I had to pick one of those two to emphasize, I would say it's really more social critique, actually. And I don't know that the uh, (laughs) statement that all heterosexual rape all, all heterosexual sex is rape is – it's reductive obviously and it's mm-hmm. it's blunt. Um, but she could be blunt. I mean she was both blunt and sophisticated at the mm-hmm. same time or sort of brute and sophisticated at the same time. But I, I don't think as a sort of one-line uh, one statement mm-hmm. of her thinking on the matters that that's entirely inaccurate. One of the things about Dworkin when you discover mm-hmm. her – you know, in the context of politics in the year 2018, is that she doesn't mesh into the sort of premises established. Now, she she violates the priors of any group you try and place her in. There's a lot right. of congruence with um, right-leaning conservatives mm-hmm. on various issues. Th- th- there are times when she ri- reminded me of Pope John Paul's... <laughs> Like yeah. theology of the body. And, you know, this was pointed out at the time. Yeah. And the, these were accusations made against her at the time, in particular from more libertarian feminists. Right. Um, and sort of sexual freedom feminists who didn't hesitate at all to point out the ways in which she was reinforcing mm-hmm. or uh, at certain points, I think, actually explicitly allying herself with um, conservative Yeah. Uh, attitudes towards sex. See, she she um, uh, she writes that uh, intercourse conveys the density, complexity, and political significance of the act of intercourse. And then later she talks about how relations with a human on the same level as oneself always have a moral dimension, right? And so she's interested in looking at sex, you know, as this act that is always uh, involves this kind of. Uh, rich um, mesh of of not just political concerns but social concerns and moral concerns and 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 that the act of sex uh, has something about uh, you know is is will always touch to the core of us right in her view in the way that she describes it yeah and the way the war will always yeah. touch to the core of us because yeah. somebody's being invaded and yep. somebody's the invader in the privacy of a woman's body right you're intruding into the privacy of a woman's body yes and and the libertarian attitude towards sex she she, she refers to it as cheap propagandistic views of fucking religious political or media originated are repudiated by the presence of a whole human life with all its worth in the act and its stake the meaning of this life and its passage is illuminated by the act the intercourse itself essentially reveals who one is and has been 
what one has lost and found, what one is willing to know, whether with cruelty or grace. This is a morality rooted in passion, in flesh, in a human intimacy in which anguish and possibility are each a part of the other and willful ignorance of the world is the basest sin. And in this morality, when fucking is hatred, when fucking is revenge, then fucking is hell, a destruction in violence and suffering of self-knowledge and self-esteem, the destruction of a human being, someone else perhaps, certainly oneself. Now that view is not really compatible with a kind of free love aesthetic, right? No, no, it's uh, openly antithetical to... Or a casual one-night stand that both parties enjoy. Well, okay, but those are the easier things to point out. It's easy to say that Dworkin is hostile to right. free love, and it's easy to say that Dworkin is hostile to, uh, say, a, a one-night stand. Sure. But what Dworkin's really hostile to is the possibility of a kind of... Um, pure experience of physical love between a man and a woman that isn't encumbered by and overshadowed by not only a legacy of dominance, but an enactment mm. of violence and domination. Right. And that's why the statement about all heterosexual sex being rape is not, not really, I mean, it's reductive, but it's not inaccurate because her point is both that the physical... Uh, you know, the, the, the physical aspect of the act of sex is, um, you know, is an invasion of sorts. And also that the, the invasion recapitulates, reinstantiates mm -hmm. this whole history of male domination and subjugation of women and overwriting of women and, and overtaking of a women, woman's subjective experience. Um, as she is objectified by a man. And that's the, the, I think, the most radical part of it, right, is at the time, maybe what seemed to be radical was the attack on the hippie free love aesthetic. But the, mm -hmm. the hippie free love aesthetic was a, a kind of outre mm -hmm. social mode in, in its own right. But, you know, what Dworkin's really saying is, you know, you who think that you have a kind of decent conventional uh, relationship and you who think that you've achieved a kind of equality and an equal footing are deluding yourselves. Yeah. 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 And I don't like I, I, hearing myself now and it sounds like um, sort of purely critical of Dworkin, but, you know, I was when I suggested we do Dworkin, it, it was in part because of how hard she hit me the yeah. first time I came across some of this stuff recently and I... I watched uh, an exchange. Dworkin was on William Buckley's debate show. Mm. I forget the name of it. The, the editor Firing of National line. Review. Firing Line. Yeah. Is it Power Line or Firing Line? Firing Line. Firing Line. She appeared on that and they debated. Which, by the way, when I watched that, I thought, man, I thought, like, what a great program. It was fantastic. Yeah. It was fantastic. We really need that. And there I mean, was it was real. It just reminded me yeah. of how shallow so much of the debates. And, and I mean, yeah. this is an old critique. I don't want to get into the old man no, back but it, in the but day you know, back when I was, you know, eight. But It's worth pointing out, though, that, that William Buckley, yeah. the editor of Firing Line, or excuse me, the editor of National Review, had this radical feminist on his program, and they had to call as, it. As well as, it was, it was an all-women woman panel, and he yeah. had you know, people representing different 
you know, ideological perspectives right, but within even the, the Dorkin was the only the interesting one. Yeah, Dorkin was is the, the only interesting, interesting one on, on that panel. Right. But the, she came on and they had a vigorous, informative debate. Yeah. And anybody who watched that debate or listened to that debate would have come away smarter because they pushed each other right. on their ideas and they clarified the contradictions, right. the, the antagonisms. And Dworkin's main point in that was sort of startling to me when I first came across it. And her main point in that exchange was that pornography, the industry of pornography, is a coordinated act of revenge against women Mm -hmm. by men who are responding to the... Uh, the advancement of women's social status, mm-hmm. their place in the workforce, their independence and their autonomous power in society. The, the autonomy, it's their sort of – it's their rage at women as autonomous agents who they desire. Yeah, right. And so, right. And so the, pornography, which yeah. which pretends to be a form of sexual fantasy right. that is uh, – that is – being presented for consumption to men and women isn't fantasy at all, and neither is it recreational. Right. Neither is it some something going on in a field of play. In fact, whether it's sort of deliberately contrived or not, what it really is, this industry of pornography, right? right? Not, not eroticism, but yeah. this porn, pornography industry, which we all know in America now is a you know, multi-billion dollar industry, Huge, dominates yeah. the internet, that this, the reason why pornography got to be as large as it, as it is, is in part about uh, an act of retribution against women. Like, you, okay, you, you are getting more degrees than us, you're making as much money as us, okay, well, we're going to torture you on film, basically, and we're going to enslave you and torture you on film. Now, obviously not all pornography is about enslavement and torture, but that's in a way, what Dworkin is getting at. Right. And, and, and you know, she, she also was, you know, the story of sort of Deep Throat, the Deep Throat film. Right. Where the, the actress had, um, had basically said every time you're watching me have sex on film, you're watching a rape because her, her ex-husband had coerced her and abused her. And the, the, the thing about that sort of like um, men being – wanting to enact revenge on women because they – feel feel oppressed by women because they desire them and because the women are autonomous reminded me uh, – well, reminded me two things. One, there's a, a bit from a really good good book of short stories by Leslie Neneka uh, – Leslie Neneka Rima uh, that describes a woman as pretty, yes, but in that manageable way that causes little offense. Mm. Um, and the other one was uh, uh, Tanazi Coates has this great bit on Raymond Chandler and Kendrick Lamar, right? And he talks about uh, – uh, in in Chandler's novel, uh, The Big Sleep, you know, how the detective is kind of impervious to women who are throwing yeah. themselves at, at, at him. Marlo. You know, one of them, yeah, Marlo. And, you know, one of the your rich businessman's daughters, like, shows up naked in his bed and right. opens the door. And he's like, I'm cute. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, cute like a Filipino on a right. Saturday night, which I guess is like the most racist way you could call somebody a whore. And um, the uh, – and, and Coates – it's like this is a fantasy of sort of like pure stoicism where you're totally mm-hmm. involved. Uh, and he says um, masculinity's central tenet is control and perhaps most importantly control the body. Nothing contradicts that. 
edict like erections. It unmans you. It compels you through sensations you scarcely understand. And it threatens to expose you, to humiliate you in front of everyone. Yeah, I, yeah. Th- there is certainly something to that. Um, and in particular, if you subscribe to the idea that uh, women are uh, permanent temptations and that they are leading men away from their proper duty and purpose, then, uh, you know, then the erection is a dangerous compass that's, <laughs> that's going to always point away from true north. But, uh, but the, the sort of point where that, I think, intersects with the, um, the point where that intersects with uh, the Dworkin, and they, they don't converge, obviously, it's not the same thing, but it's the idea of what is the relationship um, men have to their own sexuality and what is the relationship that women have to their own sexuality. And in the Dworkin, there is no allowance in Dworkin for uh, women to have any power um, that can be exercised in a system um, that men control the heights of. Well, and, and, and for Dworkin, it also gets down to just the nature of the bodies involved. It's all about the nature of right. the bodies. And I mean, it's, a, 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 it's a very biological... Um, she does. I mean, she does talk about sex as communion, but it's only in Baldwin that she talks about it in that way. Yeah, and it's the sex as communion is not really available to between men and women, right? Right, um, um, because it reinscribes the 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 social hierarchies and the social domination. But the view of power that Dworkin has doesn't allow for um, power to be exerted by you know, socially subordinate entities. It only travels in one direction. So if you're, if you are subordinate in any way, you're subordinate in every way. And her definition of subordination is sort of narrowly biological, like you point out also. Um, but the, the thing that she's not wrong about, you know, and the, the issue with pornography is not that, it's not that Dworkin was right about everything she said about about pornography, because Dworkin also thought that all pornography was essentially a cycle of incestuous sexual assault, right. and that, that the child rape and incest and pornography were all parts of the same thing. And, and it also lead us to more of that, which sort of historically hasn't happened. But the pornography industry, mm-hmm. you know, it's pornography is this fascinating, tantalizing cultural phenomenon because it's both omnipresent, right? Totally dominant, right? It's yeah. this vast, vast, powerful machine. And yet, if you speak about it with any expertise, you incriminate yourself, right? right? Yeah. So unless you're taking a purely sort of statistical or distance or anthropological approach, if you try to sort of like make— Chris Rock had a joke. He talked about being addicted to pornography and the audience is a little bit silent. He's like, oh, billion-dollar industry? I'm the only one? Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. Right, precisely. But— um, you know, as as somebody who has occasionally walked past a screen on which <laughs> pornography was playing, happened to glance across at it, um, 
you know, it's obvious that a lot of pornography, the subject of a lot of pornography is violence towards women. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of pornography is. Now, you can make the claim that that is a purely sort of fantasy violence, Mm -hmm. a a purely fantasy uh, subjugation of women, violence and domination. I don't think that that would make it without consequence or, or innocent just because it was ostensibly a fantasy. But that's also sort of preposterous. I mean, in the same sense that a circus acrobat, despite being a performer, still has to stick their head in a lion's mouth. Right. You know, there is a physical act involved. There are tolls to that physical act. The idea that just because it's performance, it's somehow inoculated from all the consequences of the physical and social implications of the act seems absurd to me. Right. And I want to say this, Phil. Close your ears, please. I, I, this well, is me, not so I want to say this. I, wanna, so I, I think I know where you're going to go, <laughs> but I want to I read something first. Good. So, the consequences of the act, right? There's a, there was a, an article in Commonweal, which is a Catholic hmm. magazine, uh, called "Sex Is Not Fun" by hmm. Gary Cutting. Uh, and sounds like Johnny Rotten. Yeah, that sounds like something out of a parody. Right. That sounds like something that would be mentioned in passing in the plot of something else as a joke. Right. But anyway. So he says, he says, we do need an ethics of sexuality. And the starting point should be the realization that sex is not, quote, unquote, fun. It's not, that is, an enjoyable activity that we can safely detach from things that really matter. Sex isn't like telling a joke, drinking good wine, or watching a basketball game. It's not just that sex is more intense. It also taps emotional and moral depths that ordinary pleasures don't. Core human values such as love, respect, and self-identity are always in play. Casual sex is a dangerous illusion. Sex is a problem for us mainly because we can conflate it with fun. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's uh, what he's really saying is that sex isn't trivial fun. Yeah. Right, and that in order for it to be um, what we think of as fun and not be um, damaging to us, that the fun needs to take place within uh, circumscribed, uh, you know, that there, there needs to be responsibilities uh, before it can be fun, which is sort of the, the more boring and, yeah. and more caveated way of saying it. But um, here, I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to hear this, Phil, but I ask <laughs> you please to keep this to yourself. It is my opinion that if we don't do something quickly, that um, either Catholics or leftist Puritans <laughs> will outlaw sex in this country within the next five years. I believe that there is a convergence um, on a position that is basically right, um, that's coming both from conservatives and from feminists, and that the position that's basically right is that our attitudes towards sex are broken and damaging. And part of the reason why our attitudes towards sex are broken and damaging is because we don't have a, um, I say we, um, Catholics would dispute this, but Uh, we as a society that includes people who are not Catholic don't have a theory of ourselves in which sex is one part and where we could understand uh, sex in terms of us as as human beings. And because we we don't... Because we live in a culture where we are not just porn, but sort of saturated with images that highlight sexuality, but sort of in that sort of flat way... That, you know, when you're looking at a photograph or you're mm. looking at, you know, <laughs> like a music video or whatever that sort of just uh, cuts out all kind of context and, and you know, 
the individual actor's sort of existence within a, a yeah, social that, network. Yeah, that's the, the sort of... Which is, what, which is what Dworkin, I think, one of the things that she was concerned about. That's the effect of the medium. But the medium interacts with us right. as human beings and as social agents. And because we don't have a, a way of understanding ourselves as human beings and as social agents that relates to issues like sex and anything but purely procedural, legalistic, contractual terms, because the ethical basis and the ontological basis of thinking about our most essential human characteristics has become uh, – we've lost a lot of it. It's difficult to reestablish rules for sex, rules for engaging in sex that don't either feel like fascistic infringements on basic freedoms or like uh, sort of uh, school marmish and, yeah. and, and, and puritanical. But the thing we're going to get to in a second when we talk about this short story cat person that I think comes up in a lot of these Me Too stories is, um, you know, two people who don't have an established connection to each other, who don't have any sense of their moral obligations to one another outside of these very sort of circumscribed, cut off, kind of quasi-legalistic ethical notions um, that when they get together and they try to have fun, the fun is this excruciating reenactment of porn scenes, Right, you know? And that's dangerous, and that might be legitimately fun for some people some of the time. I have no doubt that it is, but it's also dangerous because it cuts people off from their responsibilities to themselves, to each other, and I don't suggest that the government should get involved. I'm just saying if people don't figure it out, then um, probably um, Catholics will ban sex in the next five years. <laughs> Why are you pitting this on me? Because you brought up the Commonwealth article and because uh, <laughs> that guy there, – there's been a whole series of – you know, I think some of them very smart. Well, Ross Douthat wanted to ban porn and – And Douthat yeah. made a very compelling case. Right. And Matthew Walter had a piece against sex and they are all – Well, I, I, mean, I, I do have to say I do think it's sort of funny. I don't he, dismiss he got, these like, arguments. ragged on so hard for the ban porn article and, and <laughs> it was sort of like by the same people on the left who are like – will like do these intense kind of you know exegesis on cultural artifacts that have you know one eight hundredth of the the reach of um, you know one of the big uh, I looked up the what, Mind Geek is mm. the company and their biggest website has one billion users a month um, and it's all stuff that's just like horrifically offensive you know that you well not all but Mind I don't Geek. Know. MindGeek is a company that is based in, I think, Belgium that runs like UPorn and Red. I'm, I'm, I could be getting, I could oh, be getting okay. the names well, wrong, but like it owns be, yeah, a suite of like yeah. these things that are yeah. all over the world and that you know billions of people use, um, and that are filled with like just you know racist, like overtly racist and you know hmm. misogynistic content hmm. um which are acceptable in the realm of porn but would be prohibited right. a- a- anywhere else in any right. other domain you know but because they're tied to something that appeals to appears to be a, a sort of unabridgeable freedom 
then they can't be intruded on right. there or something like that. Yeah. It's weird stuff, man. Weird stuff. Um, okay. Cat person. Let's do it. All right. We had like a long debate over like what we should do, mm. uh, what story, and, and you know, should we should we some broad key? Should we do some Mary Gates skill? And um, <laughs> we're just resisting doing cat person. Uh, <laughs> It's, Why not do it, though? You know, it's a story that everybody was talking about, mm-hmm. which is a measure of its power and yeah. its success. And it captured something. And so, yeah, man, let's talk about it. And I think it's 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 a kind of perfect line from the – especially from the Dworkin, right? Yeah, much more – not a straight line, but, uh, but it does get you here in some sense, right? And men taking their revenge on women. Um, and also just, you know, one of the things that, that, that Dworkin harps on is that there's always going to be this this degree of inequality in the relationship, right? Um, that is, uh, you know, in terms of the nature of the society that we're in, but she also focuses just on, on physical bodies. And there's a moment early on that uh, really struck me where there – they're dry, like they're driving together. Uh, oh, oh, hold on one second. We have to say something quickly about what it is. And what I'll, cat person is? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, cat person is uh, this short story uh, written by Kristen Rupenian, and it ran last year in the December issue of the New Yorker, and it immediately got a lot of attention. The synopsis. It's like one of the most read stories on the New Yorker website. Yeah, well, it, immediately. Was it was immediately huge. read. Everybody was talking about there were a million think pieces about, you know, what's the meaning of cat person. And basically it's about this young woman uh, who's in college who meets an older guy and begins a, a flirtation almost entirely through text messages. Mm-hmm. And because it's occurring through text messages, it allows both for this, you know, shorthand cleverness and this these shorthand inside jokes between mm-hmm. them, which is very much, I think, endemic to text speak. And it also allows the relationship to happen very much within the realm of the, the fantasies of each party. Exactly. In their own minds, and it's open to a lot of sort of misinterpretation and sudden dramatic swings in mood because anything can be interpreted um, several different ways and it's all sort of built on top of this emotional architecture in their own heads. So it's not grounded in their interactions and it is therefore, I think, more volatile. So they start this relationship. They eventually um, consummate the relationship in one let's say, a very bad, misbegotten date that leads to some um, very bad and um, unwanted, though not forceful uh, or, or coercive sex between them. And then the relationship ends and it's um, – and there's – She ghosts him. He texts she her. She ghosts him. Yeah. And there's a motif throughout it also of uh, – the potential for violence coming from this larger guy who the young woman meets, who she really doesn't know very well at all, and who always is sort of looming with the potential to do her harm. That's sort of the basis of the story. And I think it was really the rendering that made it um, resonate with people and the reason why it got talked about so much. Yeah, well, I think it described an experience that a lot of people had had, and yet that wasn't 
often written and certainly not with this degree of, of just very precise kind of detail, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the you know first moment that really struck me, um, on the drive he was quieter than she'd expected and he didn't look at her very much. Before five minutes had gone by, she became wildly uncomfortable and as they got on the highway, it occurred to her that he could take her someplace and rape and murder her. She hardly knew anything about him after all. Just as she thought this, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. And she wondered if the discomfort in the, in the car was her fault because she was ask, acting jumpy and nervous, like the kind of girl who thought she was going to get murdered every time she went on a date. It's okay, you can murder me if you, if you want, she said. And he laughed and patted her knee. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's one of those moments, it's, it's just a, <laughs> it's a crazy thought to have, though it makes an total sense within the context of this, right? Um, this kind of intense feeling of vulnerability. And I've, you know, I, <laughs> I've had interactions with women where I have felt, um, Put it this way: I've never, I've never felt physically unsafe. Right? It's never even occurred to me to feel physically unsafe. Right? Um, and uh, that that's a that's a big difference. That that's a possibility uh, for her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, first of all, I think that the story is just told with really with an economy mm-hmm. that's impressive. Um, so I think it, it deserved a lot of the praise it got. I think. You know, it's really successful as sort of a story of manners and um, and at capturing the way that um, this sort of relationship evolves and takes on this coloring um, through the, the, you know, these sorts of dramatic changes and coloring triggered by very minor behavioral changes and that... Um, and uh, that, that there's also the way that, he, that, that, way. that she negotiates sort of his sort of emotional vulnerability. That's right. right. We should say it's told entirely from her perspective, but uh, but his emotional vulnerability is very much um, something that foregrounds and then recedes in the story. And at various moments, she becomes attuned to his. Um, to let's say the power she has over him mm-hmm. and at moments that attracts her to him she recognizes that vulnerability and thinks better of him for it yeah. or is drawn to him for it and at other moments it repulses her right there's a there's a line where he kisses her um Margaret had trouble believing that a grown man could possibly be so bad at kissing it seemed awful yet somehow it also gave her that tender feeling towards him again since that even though he was older than her she knew something he didn't yeah, and throughout the story, you know, it seems she knows a lot that he doesn't. And um, should we give away the ending? Why not, right? Yeah. It's sort of – so the the story ends. They have this really bad sexual encounter. He treats her brusquely and is sort of, um, you know, inattentively, in, indelicately. He, he treats her in a way that seems like he's imitating things from porn actually. Yeah, so if you read the account of uh, – by the woman who um, – you know, had the, the sexual encounter with Aziz Ansari, it reads exactly like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it is strikingly similar 
to what you got from the Aziz Ansari story. I didn't read that. Well, it's strikingly similar. It's a it's a man who, in his first sexual encounter with a woman, not after having sort of negotiated mm-hmm. realms of mutual satisfaction, but in his very first encounter, is taking physical liberties and sort of playing out scenes that he's watched in pornography, and um, and in both cases, it's you know, in real life and and in the story, it's profoundly disturbing to the woman. In the story. Um, she suffers through this experience, is disgusted mm-hmm. with him and with herself afterwards, um, sort of sits there um, just seething with, um, you know, anger towards him afterwards. And then very shortly after this bad sexual encounter, she cuts off the relationship um, with a, a very abrupt text message sent by her roommate that basically says, hey, I'm not interested. Leave me alone after she has been ignoring him. He proceeds to, you know, text her for a while after that, and then the very last line of the story after they've run into well, each the, other. the the ending yeah. of the story is just a series of his unresponded to text messages, right? And it starts yeah. out, you know, him trying to be polite. Hey, Margo, I saw you at the bar tonight. I know you said not to text you, but I just wanted to say you look really pretty. I hope you're doing well. And then, you know. Uh, it going through to I felt like we had a real connection. Is that guy you were with tonight your boyfriend? Um, are you fucking that guy right now? Are you? Are you? Are you? Answer me. And then the last text message is whore. And that ends the story. Yeah, and I, I wish I hadn't read uh, an interview with the author that I did read um, where that that last line is uh, – in her framing of it, it's supposed to be sort of the revelation of – you know, this guy's essential character. She says, she says, Margot keeps trying to construct, this is the author talking about her story. Margot keeps trying to construct an image of Robert based on incomplete and unreliable information, which is why her interpretation of him can't stay still. The point at which she receives unequivocal evidence about the kind of person he is, is the point at which the story ends. I mean, it's funny, right? Because by her own, it doesn't make any sense by her own logic. Because by her own logic, that's only more incomplete fragmentary mm-hmm. information, right? All the preceding sort of it's all text message information. The preceding text message information is incomplete, insubstantial in some way. But because he says whore, that's complete. That's the definitive statement about who he is. I mean, it's not just um, that it seems unfair to the guy. It's uh, it's not unfair to say that it's a, a terrible thing to say to somebody. Um, it's unfair that it should be the final statement on the person, but it's also leaving aside questions of fairness. It seems by her own standard to be no more complete than any of the preceding fragmentary, mercurial, shifting texts that preceded it, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I was, I, I thought it was interesting that she, she described it that way, um, the um, <laughs> have you ever been in an argument where the other person goes too far and you're almost gratified because then it allows you to kind of shelve every other aspect of the argument because now you Absolutely. feel like you're in I have firm provoked footing. somebody <laughs> to go too far so that I could do that more than once. Yeah, I mean even if even if it does reveal his character and, and you know, I don't think 
this guy's a particularly good guy. He's sort of weirdly manipulative throughout. Um, you know, whether she's fair to him or not uh, was to me not – you know, it, it, it wasn't necessarily the point. I could see – um, the guy that we that we meet before, I was surprised by it, but I could see that the guy that we meet before in a fit of anger saying something or texting something like that. Um, but it was the, the the heart of the story was not, you know, here's this terrible encounter and and let's determine definitively whether he's a bad guy and that's the thing that explains everything about the encounter. The thing about the story was just how well observed it was. That's right, right. and you know the the. The observe, you know, what happens is not fully answered by whether or not he's a good guy, right? Because uh, d- different different gradations of the, this experience are going to happen in sexual encounters between people who don't know each other that well. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to feel that way. That's what I'm saying. I'd rather not or, have read or that even people who know each it. other relatively well, and yet, you know, um, are new to each other sexually. Yeah, listen, there is the, – the point throughout, right, is that – and here's the tie-in to Dworkin. The point is that I think his whore, his calling her a whore means something that none of her slights against him, assuming that mm-hmm. you perceive there to be slights against him, none of her uh, insensitivities towards him could ever amount to. And the reason why is because he's in a position of power. Why is he in a position of power? Not only because he's older, but because he retains throughout this ominous, looming threat of violence. That's why ultimately – Because she feels physically unsafe. When, so there's a there's a bit where she's with her friends at a bar yeah. and he's there. Right. Right? And, you know, the, the – and this is why I think the I, – I, I think it's pretty substantial – the physical threat, even if it's not – even if it's something that he would never, ever do, right, the, the potential for that is something that she's going to feel that he doesn't. There's always an intimation of violence, which is why if he calls her a whore, it is severe in a way that a verbal slight she might make to him is not. That there is a inherent – now, you could say that there's therefore a – male responsibility to restraint if there is this always always this threat of violence and predilection towards violence, um, which, by the way, there is. I mean, some of that is there. I don't think – I don't think that every mean thing a man says to a woman always carries the threat of violence. And I think particularly once you've established a relationship with somebody that um, this constant looming – you know, ambient threat of violence, you you realize pretty quickly whether that's something you need to keep at the front of your mind or not. Um, but what it ends up meaning in terms of the dynamics of their relationship is that um, she is basically always innocent. There's a perpetual innocence in her behaviors, even if they're misguided, even if they're sort of insensitive or callous, they're never, they never have the full weight of like cruelty towards another human being because that cruelty never has the threat of violence behind it. And I just think that that's a flattening, uh, false and flattening view of the relations between men and women. And I'm not sure I would have gotten that view 
had I not read that interview with her. Well, that doesn't ruin the yeah, story no, for me or anything. And the story like, itself opens its, opens itself up to um, – it doesn't necessarily lead you to that view, right? No, it didn't lead me to that view at all. I thought, right. the, I thought the ending – first of all, I'm not somebody who likes – I don't put a premium on ambiguous endings. I mm-hmm. think that's a stupid modern construction. Some ambiguous endings are good. Some are sellouts. You know, you want to pay off. That's what an well, ending so, should f- do. So for me, I, I and it pays off. I, it it well. I, the funny thing for me is when I read this, I, I didn't read it as an unambiguous ending. I read it as a. It felt like an endpoint had mm. been reached, but I didn't feel like it clarified everything in the way that the interview suggests. I didn't think it rendered judgment. Right. I thought it clarified like – I thought he seemed pathetic rather yeah. than, um, you know, vindictive. Um, well, to go back to, to Solanus, he seemed pathetic, self-loathing, uh, <laughs> you know, desirous. I mean – Yeah, yeah. He seemed all of those things, right? And so the – but the, the question – wounded. And wounded, and and in and and the male, the characteristic male wounded behavior is to lash out at the woman, right? right? Um, I'm not sure that that's not the characteristic male wounded behavior. I think we're all looking for somebody weaker than us to uh, to take things out on, um, either somebody weaker than us or somebody vulnerable to us because we've conditioned them to trust us. Um, but the, the moral calculus, the thing that is so discouragingly flattening about the, the rendering of the sort of emotional and ethical landscape of this is the what I get, unfortunately, from the interview, which is the idea that, like, there's only one person who who has any power here and that the person who has the power um, – in even these sorts of trivial, you know, a text message is a trivial thing, I think. Um, and it can be cruel and hurtful, but it's not violence. But there is an implicit connection between violence and the text message. And that the text message is in, in a continuum with the threat of violence that presents itself when they're alone in the car, when they're alone at his house. Um, so that's one part of what I get. The other part that I get in terms of – Which might be perceived yeah. that way by the, the woman, right? Like if she sees him again because he does live in that area. Mm. She will be more nervous and more sort of physically afraid the next time she sees him as a result of that. Oh, are you sure that she'll be more physically afraid? Maybe she will be. Um, you know, yeah, that's possible. Um, but I think you're nervous around people that you've had fraught emotional entanglements with um, – I think you're nervous around people. You feel like you've slighted. I don't think that you always feel that that nervousness exists in a continuum with rape and murder. And that when relationships end between people – look, I've had relationships and um, in ways where – I don't know how much of this I want to get into. It's also part of the – part of the reason that it's so bad is not just about sort of negative – kind of moral characteristics that he has, but he's just bad at sex, right? And he's, like, not fully too messant. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's too messant? <laughs> uh, you know, he's not fully hard during during mm. during the sex, and he's, like, um, keeps repeating, you're making me so hard as if to, to try and, like, amp himself out. And it's, it's 
it's a haplessness. Yeah, it's yeah he's he's hapless and and he's he's not good at it. And of course, you know, like it's the first time that they're having sex. They don't know each other's bodies, um, but he's particularly bad and uh, and nervous too, right? Uh, undoubtedly, you know. There's an interesting scene in. Um, uh, the movie Shame. Have you seen this? I have. About a character with sex addiction. Yeah, and yeah, Fastbender, right? Yeah, with Fastbender, where the, char- the main character, um, who's just kind of constantly on a sexual hunt, has this meets this woman that he likes, and he you know brings her up to a hotel room, and then he can't perform, right? And you know she's like, oh, it's okay, and she leaves, and then the next scene is him having sex with a prostitute in that. Uh, same room, right? And no problem getting it up for the no, no problem, right? right? Um, and you know, there's there's a kind of um, you know just vulnerability and loss of control and and uh, inability to control yourself in sex. You know, it's it's funny. Andrew um, Andrew Dworkin talks about Augustine, yeah, Saint right. Augustine, who thought that you know in paradise. Uh, before the fall, sex was rational right. and Adam would just be like, all right, you know, time to go and everything would work, right? But, um, you know, <laughs> that's not how it works in real life. And so there's this kind of weird, in addition to his physical threat, is his inability to perform physically um, that is a big part of why the whole thing fails. He's not particularly attractive. She actually is turned on. She's the one who suggests sex uh, at the outset, right? We are setting ourselves up for misery and harm by the the way in which we treat sex as something that can't have either any innocence or any explicit uh, responsibility attached to it in that this is their first time having sex. And it's not just that he's hapless, right? It's that his haplessness occurs through the motions of super experience. Right. You know, the, a porn scene. Yeah. He can't be fumbling and hapless. And hey, does it? Does this? Do you like this? Uh, how? How shall we? commune with one another. You know, right. how shall we meet one another? How shall we communicate with one another? And I'll allow myself, and this is a way in which, you know, masculinity can be incredibly, um, let's say, uh, uh, self-defeating, self-limiting yeah, to men, um, because we can't allow ourselves that innocence, that awkwardness. Unfortunately, I think that some of um, some of the uh, ideology that's accompanied women's sexual emancipation has also conditioned, and this is one of the things Dworkin gets at, this idea that like hypersexuality is a form of liberation. So women also can't say, can't acknowledge any innocence because it would be like saying that you're regressive or, 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 or a rube, unsophisticated in some way. And so what makes the haplessness so much worse with this guy? And, and well, but, but both, of, both of them are, are new and inexperienced. I mean like she's, she's slept with other, other men but yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you know, 
you you'd have to have a certain naivete to be in this position with this guy in the first place, sure. right? Um, and you know, I, I, I'm I'm you know very happily married now. And one of the things my wife talk about is like the amount of learning that you do in like your you know twenties, just in relationships and failing in relationships, yeah, is unbelievable, right? Yeah. And this guy, even though he's in his thirties, clearly hasn't done that, right? Um, and she's young, right? She's yeah. 20. Uh, and so she doesn't, you know, there, there are kind of signals that he gives off and, and, and things that he does and says that, that should be, I think, much more kind of flags for what's to come. You very much get the impression, though, and I think this is part of what sort of underwrites the dynamic between them is that she's 20 and he's 34, right. but that she's actually more sexually experienced than yes, he is. Yes, um, And she's also, she's also trying to be kind at the outset. She's right. trying to be kind and and in part because she's trying to be kind, because she doesn't want to wound him, she allows him to do things that she doesn't actually want him to do and that she ends up really resenting him for. Right. And so one response to that, right, in a sort of practical way, like how shall we – you know, one response to that is to say, ah, we need to communicate more and be more explicit with one another because – if there had been more communication, if there had been affirmative consent or whatever, then he wouldn't have done these things that she was actually Right, and the affirmative with. consent needs to go throughout the entirety of the right. exchange because um, she's the one who initiates things. So right. it would have to be he – At every step. At every stage. And, and look, there's, there's a degree to which like, like as a male sexual partner, like you should be attuned to the person and, and – trying to make sure that they're not sort of visibly distraught. It's not that hard to tell. Well, you say that it's not that hard to tell. I I don't know. uh, I think the whole point of affirmative consent, in a sense, is that it's so hard to tell that the only expression of consent has to be formally contractual because anything else is insufficient to express consent. So in that sense, it is infinitely hard to tell. But the, the more basic thing to me is that you know, that um, they're not, like, they're not in a position to sort of be with each other in that yeah. way. And that if they knew each other better, like, you know, actually knew each other as human beings, that the answer, in other words, is not more explicit or more contractual consent. The answer is more of a, a foundation of um, of relations between them and... Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not somebody who um, is trying to prohibit sex before marriage or anything. But, but if you're talking about like, what's the practical? What is the practical remedy to the unfortunate, uh, uh, injurious outcome of this sort of sexual interaction? You know, I, I would think it's um, a more established emotional foundation and connection between two people and I don't know exactly what the limits of that are or sort of what the standard for that is but that much more because in an affirmative consent situation you could easily envision her still wanting not to wound him still feeling the sort of social pressure granting a kind of formal technical consent to things that she still actually doesn't want to do uh, you know what I mean yeah, or I mean, I think one of the one of the reasons that it's kind of that it's hard, and this this goes with the 
is Isansari's thing too, is it's in this weird nebulous region between like having a relationship and having casual sex, right? Like is what we're interested in like, you know, <laughs> I, I, I have a friend who used to go to like sex parties, right? And, um, you know, I don't think anybody and, – and one thing they said that was interesting to me is said sort of for people who are designing these things, who's into the kink scene in New York, like the whole way it's designed is around making women comfortable, right? Because um, if you don't have that, you don't have a sex party. Um, but for that, that's just like kind of permutations of bodies, you know? I don't think anybody there is like, oh, I, I didn't have a – emotional connection with somebody, right? Like even if somebody performs poorly in that sense, it's not going to be wounding in the same way, uh, whether or not you think that's kind of wounding to individuals to, to participate in that if you're kind of more cultural conservative. But the – this and the Aziz Sansari is in this thing where there's like I want an emotional connection or I feel responsible for the yeah. other person's emotional, yeah. you know, uh, uh, states and – and then at the same time, we're going to rush into sex, which is this kind of deeply vulnerable thing with that can have huge sort of after effects and consequences before we really know each other. And I'm only going to find out later what kind of person I was engaging with in that with. Um, and so in that kind of weird nebulous region, yeah. there's a potential for a lot of pain. Yeah, and yet we have set up a sort of – uh, we have set up a framework and conception of liberty and equality for ourselves that makes any curtailment of sexual license appear to be reactionary, repressive. Um, well, it's also just that sort of sex is like the highest goal, right? And and this goes very much to the the kind of discussions of masculinity, right? Like. Um, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful bit in uh, William March's Company K where there's this character who is a virgin and in and, and his you know, thing he talks about how, you know, as soon as they found out about it, everybody would mock him. Uh, it's a novel about the First World War and, you know, they've got this duty in this French town and uh, – this woman comes over and she starts talking to him and talking to him about his girl back home and all these other things. And, and as the night wears on, she takes him home and has sex with him and then later finds out that she was a prostitute and she then immediately goes back and tells them about how hapless he was and they're all you know now making fun of him even more. Uh, and then he finds out that he's got like a disease from her. And the ending of that little chapter is him talking about, you know, I never knew why virginity in a male was such a disgusting thing, so worthy of universal contempt, right? Um, Butchering the line, but it was, you know, something along those lines. And so, you know, this this notion of what a man is and what a man is supposed to be is is a, you know, longstanding thing, obviously. Um, We've said very little about – what women are and what women are supposed to be, which I feel a particular expertise in, and I, I would like to <laughs> yeah. explain. But uh, but that'll hold off for. But but so you know future episodes. Yeah, yeah. and and so the, but I think the pursuit of sex is a positive good and a, a a thing that you ought be having. If there's something wrong with you if you're not having, um, uh, is a kind of cultural universal, 
right? Yeah, I think it's also possible that sex is uh, a positive good that is also because it's um, because it's so good, also dangerous and and requires um, requires uh, sort of not institutional restraints is the wrong way to put it, but uh, framework restraints that that it is too good and too dangerous for every individual to be able to navigate and adjudicate fully on their own and that there are reasonable frameworks for sexual relations that um, we've largely abandoned uh, and that we need new ones. And this has sort of become a commonplace, right, over the last year or whatever. They're like, oh, we need to renegotiate the terms of this. But it's right. We do need to renegotiate the terms of it. The question is whether we, atomized individuals, legally empowered Rawlsian rights-based liberals or whatever are capable of doing this or whether we need some sort of uh, traditional or religious superstructure to enforce this. I don't have a definite answer, but um, I think we've said a lot. I know I've said a lot. I think it, it, it bases about just <laughs> – Respecting the weight of the act, respecting the other person and the kind of moral and emotional complications that, that, that are involved in that. And that yeah. I mean mm. – yeah. I don't know. It's, it's all about respecting each other. I mean define respect and make sure that your definition of respect accords to the, the definition of respect that, uh, you know, that your, your partner has. No, there, there needs to be something more than individually determined um, – Moral behavior, you know, respect is too flimsy, frankly. You know, as substantial as respect is, it's too subjective. There needs to be um, consensus. There needs to be agreed upon binding rules of some sort. It doesn't need to be legally binding, but with uh, social stigmas and prohibitions attached. I know that that's a you know a despicably reactionary way of thinking about these things. But um, but we need that, I think. Or somebody ought to come up with something better because the current arrangement seems to be leaving a lot of people hurt um, and unsatisfied. And past arrangements, by the way, left a lot of other people hurt right. and unsatisfied in different well, ways. Well, I, I, okay, I'll say that. Then then we need a richer, richer artistic and cultural discussions about what sex is. And I, I think the cat person is a pretty good pretty good entry in, in moving that conversation forward. Amen, brother.